What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wagner, live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. We have a big interview coming up in just a short period of time. Former Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida is with us. He's going to discuss with us whether the Fed is in fact done raising interest rates, as some are predicting. This make-or-break hour begins with more debt deal uncertainty, though, and it is weighing on the markets yet again today. Word that Republican negotiators called a pause in those talks, sending stocks lower right around midday, and that's pretty much where they've been. The S&P coming off its highest close of the year, sitting at or near that closely watched 4,200 level for most of the day, just below it, as you see. Nike, a big weight on the Dow today following that cautious guidance from Foot Locker. That stock having one of its worst days ever after its outlook disappointed investors. The Nasdaq taking a breather, too, even as Apple, Alphabet, and Meta hit new 52-week highs in today's session. And that brings us to our talk of the tape, whether we're about to break out or break down. Let's ask Tony Pascarello. He's the global head of hedge fund coverage at Goldman Sachs with me once again on set. It's good to see you again. Thank you, Scott. I thought we were about maybe to break out of this range, and here we go. You know, a headline on the the debt ceiling duel brings us back below 4,200. What's your outlook right now? So we walked into the office on Wednesday, and the six-week trading range was the tightest in five years, uh, less than 3%. We've obviously teased up towards the very upper end of that range, around 4,200. As someone who's been in the rage trade camp, the the collar feels a little tight at 4,200. But we've seen this level four or five times, and it's held every single time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a believer it probably does still hold. I think the the good discipline would be to lighten up a little bit on your risk at this end of the range. Um, And I tend to believe, if I look at NASDAQ in particular, which has performed masterfully. We've talked about it every day, virtually this week. And for good reason, because it has so outperformed and there's so much hype around the hope for AI. The question is, is it so overstretched to a point where it's it's going to have a pullback? I think fundamentally there's still a lot to like, of course. I think we saw this in, in Q1 earnings, five for five with Magma. Mm-hmm. Uh, they beat expectations, return of capital, health of balance sheet again. Apple, a $90 billion buyback coupled with debt issuance last week. They're all running plays. Very few companies can run. You know, that said, I look at yesterday, the RSI and NASDAQ pushes above 70. We have the largest one-day call option volume in nine years. It just feels a little bit short-term extended to me, although it's probably still the best game in town. Okay, so given your, your hedge fund client coverage, right, you have a really unique window into where the biggest and alleged smart money is, is placing its collective bets. We learned from the 13 Fs that you're getting a big lean into AI, a big lean into mega caps. Steve Cohen the other day was speaking at an event and it was reported from those who were in the room. He's bullish on the market. One of the reasons is AI. Is, is your client base by and large growing more, I don't know, optimistic on the market? A little bit. I think the general posture of the trading community coming into this week was actually very defensive. I would have said this a couple of months ago as well. So when we look at Goldman Sachs prime brokerage data, again, always a very good kind of reveal of what people actually have on. Mm-hmm. Net exposure, 
length uh, was in the bottom decile of a three-year look back. When I look at CFTC data and S&P 500 futures, and I remind myself every single day, S&P futures trade as much in dollars as the entire cash equity market, that position for specs was near a record max short. Um, so I think in general, risk taking had been very defensive. I think if there's any place where people have been pushing a few chips forward, it would be those mega cap tech names who have kind of picked up that AI buzz. In so, a way. so toes are getting back in the water. That, that's fair to say? No one's jumping in? I think that's right. Um, you know, we've constructed a basket of the perceived beneficiaries of AI winners. It's early. I think it's kind of still rough work in this process. But what's so instructive is the reality is uh, the perceived winners, the Googles, the Microsofts, the NVIDIAs, mm -hmm. they carry the bulk of the index weight. And so I think this has been a very material tailwind for S&P 500 in general. You think the Fed is, is done? And, you know, this week was interesting because you had a couple different Fed speakers, right? Bullard and Logan suggest, oh, maybe we're not done. Maybe we need some insurance, so to speak. And then the Fed chair today, he certainly didn't seem necessarily as though he was on the same page, the hawkish page, as they were. Walking in this week, I would have said, we think they're done, as a, as a formal kind of view as a house. The interest rate strip thought they were done. Mm -hmm. Most Fed commentary, I think there's 19 occurrences of Fed commentary. A lot of it felt to me like they were trying to keep their options open. A lot's going to happen between now and June. We have another payroll number. We have another CPI number. Uh, presumably resolution one way or the other, the debt ceiling. And of course, kind of still the openness of the regional banking situation. So I think they're going to wait on as many pitches as they can. But as you say, the market did put June in play for a little bit. What I find so interesting about the, the bond market's expectations of the Fed, again, at the start of the week, you'd say, they're basically saying the Fed may or may not this summer, but the pause is probably in. And come September, they're going to hike once a meeting for eight straight meetings, which is a year in real time. And the funds rate at the end of the next year is going to be 3%. I think that's a very kind of tidy profile of a soft landing. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was lost on the stock market. I think that's part of the, again, the strength we've seen in tech. I mean, is the, is the risk that the Fed is going to be more aggressive than the market not only is priced for, but that investors expect? Because you know where the market has been placing its bets. As, as you said, the narrative was, OK, June's done. Now we're like, well, is it live or not? So that would seem to me to be a good place to talk about where the risks lie. I think if one were to articulate the, the, the skeptical narrative or the kind of short-term bearish narrative, I think it's probably where you start. Maybe the Fed's not done. By the way, core inflation is still 5.5%. Wages are still growing more than 5%. Historically, it would be an unusual place to pause. So again, I think we have to wait and see how a few of these other events play out. But I do think it's a risk that was kind of reintroduced to the market's mind this week a little bit. The other thing, you guys held a big family office event recently, I know, because I know, you know people who were, were there. Is there a difference in the way that family offices are approaching the market now versus just pure hedge funds? I think there's an immense difference. So for the, for the past five years, Scott, we've been spending more time with the family office community. I'm glad we have. I think there's an enormous amount of muscle and enormous amount of firepower. We did a survey earlier this year, 166 families, 75% of those are north of a billion. We had a big conference this week. Steve Weiss was there, had nice things to say, could have him in the house. That was um, my mole in the room. <laughs> He outed himself, so now you did anyway, so it's all right. We'll take it. He was polite. We'll take it. <laughs> but yes, I, I did, the survey worker basically say uh, they have a meaningful allocation of, of cash, and 35% intend to deploy that cash this year. Where? Public equities, private equity, private credit. So very much on the front foot, permanent capital, ultra-long duration capital, can essentially make moves no other investor type can. But, I mean, I would think by, an, by a class of investors, it would be a bit more 
cautious than your your typical hedge fund. I mean, in some cases, you have you know people who used to run hedge funds who are now running family offices. So their maybe their perspective, their client base is obviously you know not what it was. So Correct. maybe they're they're thinking differently about the risk curve. I think there's that there's that segment of family offices. I used to run a hedge fund. Now I run family office money, and I probably run it in a very similar way that I used to run it when I had LP money. And then there's kind of everyone else. There's the big American families uh, who continue to have operating businesses who have done very well in the past three or four years, continues to generate cash flow. Here's what's so interesting. If you look at their weighting to alternatives, their allocation alternatives, they have a 45% weight. Private equity, private credit, real estate, hedge funds, maybe a professional sporting team. That's like 2x a normal ultra high net worth individual. So I do think they're operating, again, very much on the front foot. All right. It's good to catch up with you, as always. Tony, thank you. Thanks, guys. Tony Pascarello joining us. Goldman Sachs, global head of hedge fund client coverage. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know whether you think there's a bubble in AI stocks. You can head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter to vote. We've got the results coming up a little bit later on in the hour. In the meantime, let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevelos is here now with that. Christina. Well, let's start with Foot Locker shares because they are plummeting right now after posting its biggest earnings miss in three years. Revenues were light. Same store sales were a solid disappointment, down 9% year over year, leading to actually lower guidance. The stock is down 27% right now. But the CEO, Mary Dillon, said promotions and a drop in discretionary spending hurt their bottom line. Listen in we skew more middle and lower income where the pressure is higher. I mean, the facts and the math are that, you know, pressure is going to be different depending on the household level of income. Foot Locker does reply on uh, lower income shoppers. Switching gears, shares of Farfetch are soaring despite the earnings miss. The luxury fashion online platform did post higher than expected revenues. Sales volume continue to grow in the United States and China, representing strong demand for high end goods, even as consumers pull back on spending. That stock is up almost 19% right now. Scott. All right, Christina, thank you. We'll see you in just a little bit. Sticking with consumer names, our next guest says the key for investing in them is to stay selective. Let's bring in Avery Sheffield of Vantage Rock back with us. Nice to see you. So this was an interesting week for retail. Yes. Sort of ending with a whimper. Yes. The way that Foot Locker is trading, kind of overshadowing everything today. But how do you view it now? Right. So, you know, I like to be optimistic uh, about the consumer. I think the consumer is an increasingly tough spot. Mm -hmm. And we've seen multiple data points through the week, um, certainly this morning and and actually and and previous reports, um, even at the even at the higher end of reports by companies like Canada Goose, like Burberry, um, showing that the, the U.S. consumer at both the higher end and the lower end is struggling more. Are, are you by and large worried about the consumer enough to say, you know what, maybe maybe it's it's too hard to be too selective. So why bother? Right. So we're watching very closely. I I, I am. Yeah, I think I think it, it's, it's not why bother. I think you want to be a very prepared mind. So what we're doing is we're spending a lot of time looking at companies, not just the companies that you know that are going to sail through this mm-hmm. fine, right? Walmart's going to sail through this fine. It's an expensive stock. Mm-hmm. Like they reported great results. The stock's not up. Um, a TJ Maxx, like the, the, the great, great companies. But looking at the companies that are more sensitive, are more beaten up, but are likely to, or that have the potential to, to really outperform and, and have enough going for them that they can surprise onto the upside over the coming year, like that's where they're going to be opportunities. But the pressure on the consumer looks to be <laughs> accelerating, not decelerating. So 
I think being a prepared mind is potentially the best place to be. I mean, I ask you a question because, you know, on a day like today, I look at Foot Locker and I'm like, okay, Foot Locker's got its issues and it's talking about bloated inventory and you got to have markdowns and more of them because they have to work through it. And then you look at Nike's down almost 4% in sympathy with that. So do I need to think differently about the Nikes of the world if I'm worried about the Foot Lockers of the world? I think I would think differently about some of these very expensive, great brands that are also potentially cyclical. I mean, we did see with Under Armour's earnings, um, certainly not perceived to be the same brand, um, have the same brand strength as a Nike, but we haven't had any data points um, uh, yet, you know, on the largest foot, uh, foot, footwear company in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to imagine that given that Foot Locker has, you know, 65% of their sales from them, that, that they, they might not experience pressure too. And then the question, of course, with all these big brands is how is China going to do? How is sure. Europe going to do? But if you see some weakness there, there's a lot of room for multiple compression. Are you reassessing as it comes to retail? The, the rebound from China has been weaker, I think, is fair to say, than, than some thought, S- particularly from a travel retail standpoint, yes. right? Estee Lauder yes. comes to mind. Yes. You're thinking now differently? So I've been more cautious on the China rebound myself. Mm. Um, I think it's been very, there there have been a lot of differences across brands, right? So companies that had, um, uh, that, that both maybe produced too much inventory themselves or had customers like in travel retail that bought a lot of inventory ahead expecting a very strong rebound, they are struggling. Those that have managed their inventory more tightly, like, actually look like they have decent results in China. Um, How long that will continue, I think, is a question. But you have to look brand by brand and their inventory levels and their potential sell-in over the previous quarter to to know, I think, where you're going to continue to see benefits. You buying this AI move? I mean, how do you think about it? Is it a bubble? You're laughing. I mean, why are you laughing? I'm laughing laughing because... It seems very bubble-like, but the bubble keeps growing, right? So it does seem like .com, it does seem like Bitcoin, because as soon as AI came out, I asked the CEOs of every company I was speaking to, Mm -hmm. so tell me about your investments in AI. And they said, oh yeah, we've been investing in AI for years. Oh, is your CapEx budget changed? Not really, maybe a little bit on the margins. And so it seemed more incremental rather than revolutionary. Um, Certainly, companies are gonna be spending more money on it, and you are hearing about incredible demand for the chips, but will that materialize into the revenue and earnings expectations people are thinking over the next five to 10 years? I think that's gonna potentially be tougher, but what's gonna stop it? I don't know, because demand is accelerating. Um, it's just, it. it I, I'm not seeing enough use cases that suggest there's going to be enough investment to justify the current valuations. And also what's interesting at a chip level is you are seeing the, the primary purchasers of AI put out announcement after announcement about their own internal initiatives that they think are going to actually be better than the dominant players' chips over time. And that suggest there won't be a monopoly um, and spending might be lower than anticipated due to cost efficiencies. Mm, but it makes you pause, if nothing else, and say it feels a little <coughs> reminiscent of that early run up in some of the stocks, even though, let's be clear, and we showed this earlier in the week, the valuation gap between then and now is extraordinary, extraordinary yes. in the early days of the internet leadership stocks, if you look at those, I don't need to mention the, right. the names, but people remember what they are and they're how crazy the valuations yes. got. I mean, is Microsoft at 30 whatever times earnings is not nearly as egregious as, as something like right. that. Maybe in the current environment, <coughs> yes. just relative to you know where rates are and what the trajectory for that and the economy, or I can see that argument. Yes, look, Microsoft might be an expensive stock, but Microsoft's not a stock that's gonna fall off a cliff. I mean, they've got a lot of good things going for them, independent of AI, and mm-hmm. AI is likely to be, I think, 
very value add for them. It's just a question of what multiple you want to pay in a market where, or in a world where short-term interest rates are five and a half percent. Avery, I appreciate it. We'll see you soon. My pleasure. Avery Sheffield joining us. We're just getting started here on Closing Bell on this Friday up next tech tech's transformational moment. The hype surrounding AI sending that sector higher, as you know by now, star Wedbush analyst Dan Ives. He joins us with his forecast. He's just back from two weeks of checks in Asia. He's going to tell us exactly what he saw on every stop he made. And later, what's next for the Fed? Former Vice Chair Richard Clarida gives his first reaction to Chair Powell's comments on inflation earlier today. That's ahead. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. We're back. Alpha, Apple, Alphabet, Meta, and the broader tech sector, he tried to say, all hitting their highest level in more than a year today. As the hype around AI has driven a sharp rally in big tech, but is the mega cap momentum and investor sentiment getting a little ahead of itself at this point? Let's ask our next guest, star Wedbush analyst Dan Ives. He is here at Post 9. It's good to see you again. Great to be here. As I mentioned in the tease, you're just back from two weeks of stops in Asia, checking on everything that's going on in tech right now. What did you learn? What was the biggest takeaway you got? I think from an investor perspective, I think the star contrast to what I've seen the last few years appetite for U.S. tech, how do you play the winners? I think you're actually seeing more and more moving from China tech to U.S. tech. And from a supply chain perspective, stabilization. I think that's the biggest thing, specifically when it comes to Apple and semis. I walk away from that trip a lot even more bullish on tech in terms of what we see from a demand perspective. Do you have a hard time, even as bullish as you are, justifying some of the moves in the stocks that we've seen? And if not, why not? Hey, look, I get that many people think, oh, could this be a hype theme, crypto, metaverse, now AI? I mean, to me, Scott, I think in 22 years covering tech, it's probably the most transformational tech theme that I've seen. So in terms of it as an opportunity, I'm not saying in the next year that necessarily the monetization is going to be there to justify these moves. But when you look at Microsoft in terms of what's happening in Redmond, you look in NVIDIA, Google and others. I mean, we believe this is, based on our estimates, an $800 billion market over the next decade. How do you get that number? I hear people talking about every time we try and we're in a, in a moment in time where we try and justify a stock move or a group of stocks and their move, we use things like total addressable market sure. and we come up with whatever number sounds amazing to us to try and justify that. Where's that number come from? Yeah, to me, and I've talked to you about it before, for, from what we're hearing from the field in terms of cloud partners from Microsoft across the board, for every $100 of cloud spend, $35 to $40 of incremental could be AI. And I think that's when you start to sort of trajectory that out, that's why the hype's there because that's when the Della, Jassy, what Google, what everyone's going after in terms of that opportunity. That's why I believe 
This is not hype. This is a real monetization opportunity. It's a Game of Thrones going on. I don't just view one winner. But that's why I think this is different than maybe other themes we've seen. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly an arms race, right? An, an arms race means that you are going to spend a lot in the beginning to try and load up your arsenal, right? To be able to rule whatever world you want to rule. But the payoff, that's unknown in terms of the time frame. When's the ROI on all the stuff that we're seeing, return on investment that we're seeing now, that, that's going towards AI. Well, I think, and this was a big theme across Asia that investors are wondering, when's the monetization? And I believe the monetization, especially when it comes to Microsoft and cloud, I think we actually start to get there by the end of this year. I, mean, I believe monetization in AI, specifically on cloud, is going to be a lot sooner than expected, which is why, you know, with a lot of these names that continue to move higher, I get the skeptics. But, but what I believe is that it's this fourth industrial revolution that's playing out, even though it's a murky macro and obviously you know, a lot of jump balls going on from a Fed perspective. I think this is different. I, I really view that it's sort of a golden age for AI, and that's why everyone's trying to figure out, okay, if it's not just Microsoft and NVIDIA, has Google benefit Salesforce? Does AMD benefit and others? And I think winners, and there's going to be losers too. That's what everyone's trying to figure out in terms of AI I know, but I remember you know, back, way back when, watching documentaries and television news programs called the, you know, the new gold rush. Same kind of stuff you're talking about relative to the internet is, is how people are referring to AI now. Um, I get it. I think everybody kind of gets it. But does that necessarily justify these near-term moves and some of the valuations that we now have in some of these stocks? I think for some, it does. Like, like I think for, my, like for Microsoft's a good example where if they could really monetize AI relative to cloud, this is a stock that could ultimately have a four in front of it. In, in terms of as they ultimately sum of the parts this and monetize. Others, they obviously have to prove it. But I think that's why right now I don't believe it's hype because I do believe the monetization theme is probably as real as anything I've seen since the late 90s. All right. Dan Ives, thank you. Thanks for being here. That's the Wedbush analyst Dan Ives joining us here Post 9. Up next, the former Federal Reserve Vice Chair, Richard Clarida. He breaks down his forecast now for interest rates. We'll get his take on the probability of a June hike, what it could mean for the economy. Don't go anywhere. Closing bell with that big interview is next. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Fed Chair Jerome Powell signaling today that stresses in the banking sector may mean interest rates won't have to go as high as expected to curb inflation. So what does this mean for the Fed's road ahead? Let's bring in Richard Clarida. He is the former Fed vice chair. It's good to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. So Powell today said we've come a long way. Our stance is restrictive. Might not have to take rates as high because of credit tightening from the banks. Are they done for the time being? I think that they've certainly paused. Uh, time being, yes, let's agree. Uh, uh, I don't think they want to declare a victory. It's not mission accomplished. Inflation is too uh, hi, but yeah, this was a very similar message than we got out of the press conference a couple of weeks ago. So I think that's what the, the chair wanted to convey, that, that they're going to pause uh, at the June meeting, certainly, and probably in July. I chose my words carefully in the way I asked you that question, you know, for a reason, for the time <laughs> being. Yeah. But what you just said 
uh, is very interesting to me in that, you know, June, okay, but you think, you think they may pause in July as well. That would be my guess. That would be my guess. Now, look, they are data dependent. You know, they've gotten off what some folks have called the hamster wheel of hiking at every uh, meeting, or at least if they pause in June, they will have gotten off the, the hamster wheel. Uh, and I take the chair at his word. Look, they have hiked a lot. Rates are restrictive. There are lags. There are challenges in the banking system. So he also emphasized today that they do want to be looking at the incoming uh, uh, data. You know, you have some hawkish members on the committee, uh, Lori Logan and, yeah. and, and Loretta Mester um, and, and some others. And so I think it's going to be a, a robust discussion. But I think the center of gravity now is, is that we have a pause, most likely uh, for for the summer. But what do I do with the, the hawkish, you know, speak uh, that we got this week? As you, you know, it was Logan and then even Bullard saying, quote, yeah. it may warrant taking out some insurance by raising rates somewhat more, um, yeah. echoing what, you know, Logan said and, and as you suggested, some others. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, I think part of what's going on here is, and we've we talked about it before on your show and I've written about it, there has been a, a tug of war between Fed messaging and market pricing. You know, just five, 10 days ago, the markets were pricing in a high likelihood of a cut in July, uh, a, a slam dunk of a cut in September. That's all been taken out. Right now, the market pricing is if there is a cut, it would be at November. And I don't think they're unhappy uh, with that. So part of what's going on here is not so much trying to tee up a hike at the next meeting. It's trying to get the markets away from teeing in imminent rate cuts. Ah, so you think that's really what Bullard and Logan were after is to try and get the, the market to move away from this idea that we're going to cut anytime soon. Exactly. I mean, I think also, you know, I respect them both. I know them both. I've worked with them. I, I think that they do think probably the Fed will need to do more. But right now, you know, the chair doesn't want to go that far. And at minimum, their 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 Fed speak has, I think, done something the Fed wants, which is to take out some rate cuts that they don't think are going to happen imminently. Do, do you think that Chair Powell is a little more worried about prospective banking issues cropping up, you know, here and there than some of the other Fed members are? I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but he did emphasize it. And obviously the chair, I worked with him closely, chair does choose his words. Uh, and he, he could have chosen not to emphasize that. So, so yes, yeah, certainly if I were back, uh, back in the building, it would be on my mind uh, as well. Again, you know, the banking system as a whole is sound, uh, but, you know, there are challenges in, in, in several banks. And, and I think he wants to certainly avoid appearing uh, to be relaxed uh, uh, about that. So I think this is the wise course. And, and to, be, to be clear, as, as our Steve Leisman noted well earlier, uh, these were not off-the-cuff remarks that were made today by the chair. He repeatedly referred to you know, either notes or a script or however he wanted to make sure that his words were clearly said and that the market clearly got the message, right? Oh, absolutely. Look, the, you, we, anyone who watched the, uh, the video could see the, see the notes. Now, that's not new. You know, the chair has notes at press conferences and, and testimony. Uh, but yes, uh, certainly, even though this was a, you know, fireside chat segment with, uh, with Ben Bernanke, Jay Powell has always came prepared. What would cause them to cut, Mr. Clarida, if, you know, let's say the, the economy doesn't necessarily have to fall off a cliff, does it, for them to cut? I mean, inflation could come down much faster than the Fed maybe expects that it will. What, what's the, the difference maker here? Yeah, you know, the reality is 
Except for a couple of months in November and December, most of the inflation news this year has been either as expected or worse than expected. Um, but look, we're going to start to get relief on headline inflation as the housing market has turned and rental inflation uh, uh, drops down. Um, and, um, and so, yes, if inflation comes down faster than they and the markets expect, and it looks to be persistent and returning towards target, uh, then they could cut sooner. They could also cut sooner if we get a sharper decline in the economy and a bigger increase in unemployment than they expect. But again, because I think that'll help to lower uh, inflation pressures. When do you think the first cut comes? Like, have you, have you must be in your, in your current role kind of thinking about that, yeah. talking about it with colleagues, gaming it out for people because you've been in the room. When does it come? Yeah. Well, I've been pushing back against the idea it would be this summer or, or, or September. As we move through the year, uh, if they start to get better news uh, on in, in inflation, remember they have cuts penciled in or, or written down for their projections in 2024. Uh, so I could certainly see if the data breaks their way, them entertaining you know, the conversation about cuts you know, in the November or December meeting to tee it up for, for next year. But I would be surprised if we see it before. And they really seem very unified in all their public comments that they, they part of the plan is to keep rates at a restrictive level for, for some time. So I think the hurdle is pretty high uh, near term to cut. I'm also wondering, everything to this point has been unanimous. What impact would there be if in June there were uh, dissents, e even if it was just one? Well, of course there can, and certainly during my time as vice chair, we had, uh, we had dissents. Um, to, quite, to be quite frank, uh, for your, your viewers, I don't think it makes that much uh, of a difference. We're going to get the monetary policy that Jay Powell thinks that the economy needs. He's very persuasive and he can usually hold the committee together, but certainly Jay Powell's not going to make a decision he doesn't want to make uh, because of a potential uh, 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 dissent. So, uh, but obviously the dissent would convey information about about where the committee sees uh, the risk. So it would, you know, it would be informative if we get it, but I don't think it's going to change a decision. But there wouldn't be a, you know, a broader issue if there was a so-called fractured Fed even if it was initially just one dissent, the mere fact that what was unanimous is no longer as we move into one of the more uncertain stages of this new regime from the Fed? I think it would depend on what the communication was, but certainly the chair could either through his own remarks or through, through people on the committee representing his views could, could convey uh, the message. Obviously, if the committee went radio silence after dissent, that would introduce uh, some uncertainty. I remind you, in 2019, uh, the Fed had three dissents for several of our rate adjustments in the summer uh, and and fall, uh, and it wasn't great, but it's, it's the direction that the chair wanted to go. So I, I don't think it's going to be a decisive, but obviously it would introduce some uncertainty and some communications challenges. Are you surprised by how resilient the economy and, and the labor market have both been? And do you think the Fed chair himself is? Well, yeah, the, the labor market in particular, I think, is surprising most uh, uh, forecasters. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's a good thing. You know, we have a record low unemployment uh, rate. And I just saw a survey today that job satisfaction statistics are back to like 35 year high. So there's a lot to like about this market. The one thing not to like about it is that wage pressures are excessive relative to the 2% inflation uh, uh, target. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that's that's the way that they're processing. But yes, the labor market has been very, been, been very robust. Has it impacted in any way your own feeling on whether you think a soft landing is achievable? 
Well, it has actually. Ironically, uh, the the stronger is the labor uh, market uh, right now, um, and, and we haven't really seen any you know striking relief in wage inflation. It's down from the peak, but it's still elevated. Um, I, I do think what that what that does mean is you know that the in order to get inflation down into two point something, we're going to have to see uh, we're going to have to see a softening in the labor market, and the longer that's delayed, potentially the more the Fed has to do. Would you entertain in any way, let's let's just say we get inflation down to target or at least close enough and we all move on and go on with our lives and the world's a better place, et cetera. Would you do you think that they would actually have a conversation in the room about changing the target? Well, sure, they can have that conversation. The chair's been pretty clear that he, he, he would be against against it. Um, I think the challenge right now is that if if they were to change the target, obviously to raise it, they wouldn't lower it. If they were to raise the inflation target, um, you know, what it would do is it would put push up bond yields um, and it would be very disruptive, not only in financial markets, but into the real uh, uh, economy. The bond market now, for all of the challenges and the twists and turns post-pandemic, the bond market thinks that the Powell Fed's going to get inflation down to two point something um, over the next uh, several years. And if they were to suddenly change the target, well, what we would see is what we oftentimes see in emerging economies when they devalue their currency and they say never again, and immediately the markets start to price in another devaluation. So you can you can make a case that several you know decades ago, the Fed and other central banks could have picked a different target but they didn't. And so um, I, I don't think it certainly they can discuss it. I don't think it's likely that they'll pull the trigger and do it. Though. You know, the other thing I'm thinking of, too, is, you know, obviously it's a dual mandate. You have stable prices, you have full employment. And here we are every day talking about the transformational um, AI and, and, and yeah. what that's going to mean. And I, I really do wonder how the Fed is going to view all of that the possible disruptions that it may cause within the labor market and whether it has to change its own methodology in the way that it sort of games out or thinks about the future of employment in this country. I think it's an excellent question. It wasn't even on my radar screen a year and a half ago when I was there. And certainly now it is very important uh, in the sense that, you know, you can see not just in 50 or 25 or 10, but you can see over the next several years scenarios where widespread adoption of some of these tools could lead to drastic changes in the demand for for workers uh, to wages to the income distribution so so absolutely um, you know it, it's probably not on the front of the radar screen now but but it will be especially once we get on the other side of this uh, inflation curve shouldn't it be on the on the radar now I mean the danger of course would be like sadly other things that have happened right that the Fed has been late to react in certain instances, and this is one where you wouldn't want to have that happen. No, no, I sure we're on the same page. I'm saying I don't think it's going to change the decision for June or whatever. Oh, for but sure. I wouldn't be, surprised, wouldn't be surprised at all. The Fed has a great team of, of staff economists, and they probably do have a dedicated staff, you know, working on these uh, scenarios right now. What makes this striking is a lot of technology, a lot of revolutionary technologies basically require changes in workflows and capital stocks in order to be uh, adopted. And, and this is something that, depending upon your, your view, could be adopted actually uh, quite quickly into existing work practices, which means it could the, the change could be quite uh, accelerated. So I'm, I'm sure they are looking into that. Yeah, Richard, I appreciate it so very much. Always good to catch up with you. Be well. Thank you. All right, that's Rich Claret, a former Fed vice chair. Up next, 
We're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close on this Friday. Christina Partsinevelos is back to do that. Christina. Yeah, earlier we told you about weakness at Foot Locker. Well, there's another name selling off on concerns about high promotions and weak retail spending. I'll have the details and more after this break. About 15 minutes to go before the closing bell. Christina Partsinevelos is looking at the key stocks she's watching. Christina. I want to start with shares of drug maker Catalan surging right now, about 15 percent, even though they cut their full year forecast. They delayed their quarterly earnings. But investors are buying into this name after management said they can sufficiently service customer demand and that the supply situation was pretty healthy. So in other words, a vote of confidence for shareholders. Catalan has been dealing with problems at various production sites just this year. And you can see the stock up over 16 percent at this point. Shares of Ulta Beauty right now are trading lower after analysts at Oppenheimer cut their price target to $575, down from $600. The stock currently is trading at $491, down over 4%. They say there's limited upside in the stock and are worried about excessive promotions, eating into margins. Ulta reporting next Thursday, Scott. All right, Christina, thank you. Last chance to weigh in as well on our Twitter question. We asked, is there a bubble in AI stocks? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. The results after this break. All right, the results of our Twitter question, we asked, is there a bubble in AI stocks? The majority of you said, yes, there is. About 70%. Well, speaking of, one of the best performing so-called AI stocks is NVIDIA. We're going to set you up for those results coming next week. We're going to break down the key metrics you need to watch, that and more, when we take you inside the market zone. We're now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Leslie Picker on the big move lower in the regional banks. And Christina Partzinevelos on NVIDIA ahead of its pivotal earnings release next week. Mike, I turn to you first. Uh, 4,200, yeah. the line in the proverbial sand. We were there, and now we're not. Yes. We're not um, that far, we're, but we're, we're not. We're roughly there, uh, at least in broad terms, at least enough for people who uh, have been believing, and I think it's the prevailing opinion that it is something of a cap on the market, to get you to rethink that, perhaps. Um, multiple things can be true at once when you get in these scenarios, which is the, the leadership of this market looks a little bit over overbought and overheated. It's time usually for a rest when that happens. You've only seen the most tentative signs of a broadening out of this market. Yes, semis have participated, but just barely had small caps avert a breakdown. So I think it's still very contingent as we get through this uh, this expiration today and maybe have the market trade uh, a little looser. But I would have to say on a net basis for the week, most things were constructive because the things we were most worried about didn't get worse. And we brought and the market responded to that. We, we did somewhat. Absolutely. Yeah. The equated S&P is up for the week. Uh, as I say, the Russell finally bounced and the regional banks, you know, they put some distance between the lows and, and where they're trading right now. I'll tell you what, these mega caps, you know, maybe taking a little bit of a breather. But, you know, Apple today, uh, I think it was Alphabet, uh, Meta. You're talking at some pretty lofty levels now. They are. Um, so they've, broadly speaking, all recaptured half the valuation crush that they underg- underwent last year. I was just looking. I mean, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Meta, uh, as well as NVIDIA, over the last three months have had significant upside revisions to earnings. So it's not just, I mean, mostly it's valuation because they've had monster stock moves. But they've seen uh, their, their fundamental outlooks improve a little bit. Meta a lot. 
like I think over three months, the earnings estimates for this year are up like 23 percent. So you have things that are at least no longer as much of a headwind, which is peak valuations on peak earnings. That's how we got into this in November of 2021. And now it's much more about, yeah, they're looking a little bit rich, but at least maybe we see a path for them to resume growth. All right. Leslie Picker, big move lower in regional banks. And I'm wondering if the Fed chair's comments today had anything to do with reviving the worries about what's happening there. It could be a little bit of that, Scott. It could also be the CNN report that came out earlier that did send at least the ETFs lower uh, some individual names as well, saying that Treasury Secretary Yellen would be open to consolidation as a way to kind of calm some of the bank stress that's out there. That CNN report, citing people familiar with the matter, I have made Several calls on this have not yet been able to confirm that reporting, but the market sense is essentially that, oh, things must be so bad that Secretary Yellen would be willing to allow for greater consolidation to take place in order to kind of stem the issues that are out there. Yeah, I mean, the Fed chair, you know, was talking about more so along the lines of, well, you know, maybe rates don't have to go up as much because of potential credit issues with the banks. I mean, it just gets everybody kind of focused on that issue, not to mention the uncertainty, Leslie, around the debt ceiling and just the overall feel about more, you know, potential, potentially sensitive areas of the market. Yeah, they've definitely been reacting to the debt ceiling news, largely on a positive basis this week. Any kind of development on that front or any positive headline they've seemed to be reacting to. There's also on the fundamental side of things, we saw Western Alliance post additional deposit increases this week. So that kind of creates this feeling that maybe things are starting to stabilize, at least on the deposit front and the customer concern front. And then, of course, there were those 13F filings. You had Berkshire Hathaway getting into Capital One, Michael Berry buying some regional banks on the long side in the first quarter. So all of those things are kind of votes of confidence, which helps send the stock price prices of these banks off of their lows, as uh, Mike alluded to. But again, today, kind of whipsawing back into the red on on some macro headlines as well as, uh, you know, the potential for things to be really bad out there, so bad that the Treasury Secretary would be willing to consider additional consolidation. All right. Good stuff, uh, Leslie. Have a good weekend. Christina, NVIDIA. Yeah. I mean, the stock's a double. Stock's a double this year alone. So there's a lot to live up to next week. Well, it's because it's the main beneficiary of AI right now. So heading into earnings, yes, we're going to want to hear all about the data centers. Yes, we're going to want to hear about GPU sales. But we have to think, too, gaming is another major contributor to a revenue. There could be some weakness coming out of China. So that's something that we're going to be looking at. Uh, We're also going to be looking, is there going to be any supply glut? Is there going to be any issues getting silicon? Because there's such a, a rampant demand for a lot of these AI chips. But this name is trading at, what, 29 times sales, 20 or 182 times earnings. This is an expensive name. A lot of people are expecting it to keep growing. So that's why, Scott, guidance for this name. Guidance is going to be so important to see where are we going with this ramp up in GPUs? Will there be enough? Who else is going to be buying it? And what are they going to do uh, with their products? Are they going to continue to uh, ramp up their orders with TSMC? So that's another name to pay close attention to out of this earnings report. And we will. Christina, thank you. Got to run because I have some breaking news on the airlines. Phil LeBeau has that for me. Phil, what do you got? Scott, the Justice, the Justice Department has won its lawsuit to undo the Northeast Alliance. That is the alliance that allows JetBlue and American to essentially run a code share operation for their flights 
in New York and Boston. And this was one of those suits that people were watching closely to see if the federal government would be successful in saying, oh, no, we disagree with what was approved during the Trump administration. And there were a number of people who thought there was a good chance that JetBlue and American would prevail. But again, the DOJ has won its antitrust suit. This would undo the American Airlines and JetBlue alliance. I should point out that both JetBlue and American have said in the past that if they were to lose this uh, opinion from a court, that they would be appealing that decision. So I would expect that we will see some type of appeal formed uh, or filed soon. JetBlue, we have reached out for a comment, have not heard from them. And American... They say they will have a comment likely later this afternoon. Scott, right. back to you. All right, Bill. Thank you, Bill LeBeau. As we approach the close, we have less than 45 seconds to go now. You know, retail, big week this week. Discretionary, yeah. which we don't talk about nearly enough, is the third best performing sector of the year. Yeah. You have a lot of questions here now with Foot Locker, and I'm watching Nike out of the Dow down more than 3%. It is incredibly uneven and spotty, and certainly apparel and chain stores have been the worst of it in getting discretionary. It's a matter of whether you think that the home builder stocks are telling you that the consumer and households are in decent shape, uh, along with things like semis. But, you know, transport, retail, it's not been a great story, but there's time, as you say, for this uh, rally to broaden out. All right, good stuff. Have a good weekend, Mike. All of you have a good weekend as well. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.